Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. We're back. We've had a month off over the summer, blobbing out at the beach, but we're now back and raring to go, rejuvenated and wanting to bring you, our audience, the very best of popular bestsellers for irresistible reading. And it's kind of appropriate that while I've been away, Australia's bushfires have been making international news. So our first episode for this year features author Stephanie Parkin, whose latest book, Josephine's Garden, explores the excitement and the heartbreak that the discovery of Australian flora and fauna created in 19th century Europe, specifically in the household of Napoleon's empress, Josephine Bonaparte. Links to all the talking points of this episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. Leave us comments, feel free to just go there and say what you think or subscribe to future episodes. But now, here's Stephanie. Hi there, Stephanie, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hello. Nice to speak with you, Jenny. Look, you, you, I really should be calling you Dr. Stephanie Parker, shouldn't I? Because you have got a PhD in science and you had a very interesting career in science before you turned to writing fiction. I'm wondering how did that transition occur and was there some sort of epiphany moment, some once upon a time moment when you just knew that you had to write fiction? Yes, it's... Um I guess I always wanted to. So when I was a little girl, I was writing short stories and poems and things like that from a very early age. Um, But I sort of put that aside while I was doing my school and terrestrial uh, uh, tertiary education and then working as a scientist. But I I just really, it was always there in the back of my mind. So, and I was um, always making up stories around me I guess and I so I started to get into it again and the uh, Royal Society um, had a man hire prize for creative science writing and I thought well that sounds like a perfect bit of you know something that might be related <sighs> with me so I, I tried to do a bit of my fiction storytelling um, and I actually got shortlisted in that prize so that was a huge boost um, and encouragement to start writing a novel and I and I did start writing a novel while I was working and that novel has never been published that's my um <laughs> my trial novel shall we say but um yeah so I think having having it in the background and also that um that short story prize as a as a little goal to go for um was was a bit of a impetus to get back into the writing Yes, now you're carving out a niche for yourself in the area of historical fiction with books that very much reflect that scientific background. And can you tell us what has drawn you to the stories that you've chosen to tell? Yeah, my first uh, novel, Into the World, was um, I was drawn to it because it was about scientists and it was about that early age of exploration, um, which seems like such a wonderful 
time when you didn't really know things about the world. Now we can look it all up online, but then, of course, they um, they had to were traveling to unknown places um, for the very first time. And when I started looking into, I was living in Tasmania at the time, and when I started looking at um, this story of these explorers that had come there and had this interesting, curious interaction with the local Aboriginal people, I found that there was a woman that had disguised herself as a man and journeyed on the voyage. And that was what started me, that kicked me into that story, thinking, well, what what was her story? How did she end up um, doing this? So, yeah, that was, science sort of led me into that. And, um, and the botanist and the gardener and that um, were, were one of the key characters as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, the newest one is called Josephine's Garden, and it's a captivating tale of Napoleon Bonaparte's empress and her passion for creating an amazing garden at her country home at Malmaison. Yes. How did your interest in Josephine evolve? Well, that actually led on from the first one in a way because uh, the botanist and gardener, that I just mentioned, they go on to become involved with Josephine. So I wanted to see what happened to them at the end of my first novel. And um, the gardener becomes chief gardener for Josephine and the botanist is part of the Jardin de Plant that end up being sort of botanical rivals with Josephine. So that was perfect to sort of explore that next phase the first one was sort of the French Revolution era of France and the next phase is Napoleon and Josephine. And I didn't know much about them um, other than that it was supposed to be a great love story but very tragic that they had to part because she couldn't give him a child. And um, But, yeah, so it was looking at those gardeners' lives and realising that she had this amazing passion for gardening Um, and that she was maybe a little maligned over time as well, Um, that that sort of, um, you know, gave me the impetus to think, oh, there's something here, there's something interesting here as a story. The fact that she was trying to, um, desperately trying to give an ear to Napoleon to keep her place in society and um, at the same time trying to grow all these amazing plants from around the world that people were seeing for the very first time. So that was that was what got me into that one. Yes, I, actually, I was going to ask you about that because in the book, her desire to have a child and her desire to propagate the first blue gums in Europe, um, they become very much interwoven in the story and she sees success in her greenhouse with the blue gums or lack of it as important for what might happen with her own personal fertility. And I wondered how much of that was fact and how much was your own creative license, but it sounds like quite a lot of it was basically historical fact. Yes, the um, she certainly was very obsessed with growing these plants from around the world. So she would write to sea captains who were going to um, Australia and, and basically she had uh, Napoleon... Um, you know, he, he sent the Bodan expedition, which came around Australia at that time as well, and she was really keen on getting these seeds back from that expedition, and that's when she gets into this botanical rivalry with the official Jardin de Plant. 
But, um, yeah, so she was definitely very interested in growing these things. She had wallabies and emus um, that had been collected on that voyage as well. Um, and, yeah, just all the different exotic plants from around the world of the times. In, in regard to the blue gum, I know she was growing a lot of the Australian plants, the eucalypts and the um, acacias and things like that for the first time in Europe. Um, and with the blue gums, I, I can't actually remember how much I absolutely knew or how much I inferred, but um, I knew that Blabaladier, for instance, that's the name of the botanist, he, he named and officially described the blue gums for the first time. And because I was uh, including him in the story and because he and the gardener had found them for the first time for European audiences, I guess, um, European eyes, um, I knew that, they, that that would have been a very important species for them to try and grow. And there was uh, hints in the records that I read that there definitely was a rivalry between the two, Jardin de Plante and um, Josephine, because uh, the Minister of Marine actually had to intervene at the time and sort of sort out who was who was going to get the specimens. So there was a little hint of there was definitely something there. And then I just extrapolated yeah. from that, really. Um, both of your heroines, both Josephine and the girl in Into the World, Marie Sheridan, isn't it? Yeah, that's Marie-Louise Sheridan, yeah. Um, they're both very strong, independent women, sort of willing to do things that are a little bit outside of the, um, the, the normal range. What did you find particularly engrossing about Josephine as you got more into her character? Yeah, well, it was an amazing rags to riches sort of story for her. She um, she really had some struggles in her life that I found fascinating as well. And um, the fact that she was uh, sent to Paris as a 16, 15-year-old to marry a man that she didn't know, he despises her when um, she gets married and he ends up putting her in a convent um, separates her from her children or one of them at the time um, and later she manages to divorce him but then later she uh, gets put in prison during the reign of terror because he was put in prison so she nearly loses her head at that <laughs> in, in that stage of history as well um, and then she goes on to meet all these um, new leaders of France and be sort of escalated into into Napoleon's realm and um, yeah so she carries on up to become an empress of France from starting as a colonial girl from Martinique sent to um, Paris when she was only a teenager so she had a, an amazing backstory and um, and I also was she must have been so determined to achieve what she did with the garden at Malmaison as well. The fact that she built these big glass houses for the first time in Europe and um, she has sort of been a bit maligned her uh, as, a, as a prostitute, which, which came out of the English propaganda of the time as well. But she certainly was a quarter, like a, like a, a-list celebrity party girl of the time when she first met Napoleon 
and um, at these parties anything would go sort of thing. <laughs> so she certainly had a risque past, but um, and but she's been sort of thought of as as either a prostitute or um, that her interest in botany was more about just the prettiness of the flowers. But if that was the case, then why would she have tried to grow all these unusual things from seeds from around the world that she wouldn't know whether or not they were going to be pretty flowers or not? You know, I think there was more to her than um, than had been sort of projected over time. Yes, yeah. And it's, it's kind of poignant what's happening now with the Australian fauna just in this last few months, the terrible fires that they've had there. Um, I wondered how, you, if you sort of saw any kind of irony in the fact that, you know, they were so celebrated in, in, that, in the 19th century and yet now they're, they're facing virtual destruction. What's, what's your thoughts in response to the crisis that's going on there? Yes, yes, it's so um, terrifying and catastrophic and especially when the fires are going into into wetter rainforesty areas that are not as acclimatised to um, dealing with fire regimes. So those are the times when I was living in Tasmania, um, parts of the forests there that were wetter forests burnt that you know they won't come back as quickly as the um, as the more dry eucalypt areas, and I was actually living in Australia back in the time and when the Black Saturday fires came through, and um, it, people then were trying to say uh, you know climate change is going to make these fires worse, but. Nobody wanted to listen then, and it was a sort of a backlash to anyone that tried to bring that up. And, you know, people are still trying to say now, you know, this is going to be the future if, if we don't do something about climate change. There's going to be more fires and more loss. And, um, yeah, so it is, a, it is a scary time, and it will be interesting. I'm going book touring in February through mainland Australia, and it will be – quite sobering I think to drive through some of those areas yeah it'll be an interesting time yes I I know that for the for people who who aren't living in our part of the world you're you're in the Coromandel and I'm I'm between Auckland and the Coromandel but we've both experienced these weird skies that we've been having since Christmas um I must admit I chose one Sunday afternoon to have friends up for drinks and the sky, the, it was looking really weird. I was thinking, what's yeah. happening? Is it going to rain? Or And then I realised that the sky was kind of going a yellow colour and yes. I realised it was the fires. Yeah. And, it was, and in other parts of New Zealand we've had bl- sort of orange skies, haven't we? Yeah, it was really freaky that day. So it's, and, I, you know, imagine it's, it's way worse for people in Australia that are closer to the fires, but just the fact that it's come all that way across the ocean yeah. and it, it rolled, yeah. it really rolled in, didn't it? And it covered us all and, you know, that orange glow and, um, yeah, you see the global effect really, don't you? You do. And also in the morning the sun was rising with a blood red sun. I tried to photograph it but it just didn't come out on my phone. But it was a real blood red sun rising in the morning. It was quite weird it, it did have an apocalyptic yeah effect. yeah and everything yeah, gets a strange yeah. glow the sun you know even now it's not quite crisp and clear is it everything is a bit hazy no. yeah yes yeah mm. um 
just turning back to Malmaison, what, what can you see at Malmaison today? And, and have you had the chance to visit there? Is it somewhere you can visit now? Yes, it is. So um, you can visit the house, the chateau that she lived in, and it's now a museum. So you can see everything that she would have owned as well, the um, way she decorated it, one of the things that she did do was spend a lot of money on redecorating things. So um, it is uh, preserved. You can walk around the music room and the bedrooms, and that's fabulous to see. Unfortunately, um, the gardens are pretty much not non-existent anymore, not to the extent that they would have been when she was there. She had 300 acres. Now most of it's been subdivided up for the, for the local town, and so it's all a much closer you know, much closer to the to the town, and it's nestled in that um, a bit more. And but it's still possible to visit and get a real sense of what it must have been like uh, to be her. <laughs> yeah, and I gather that a lot of their love letters um, are still available. Um, how did you go about your research for Josephine in particular, and where did you find your best lead? Yeah, so the uh, letters of Napoleon to her have been preserved because she kept them all, um, and they have been published. So that was that was brilliant, translated and and published. Um, so I did get to read all of those, um, and there has been a lot of historians that have written about them. So that was that was a great start to getting into the. Um, the era and the story of the, the those two people. So I read a lot of different books about them uh, to form my own opinion of who they were and who they, what their characters were. Uh, and some of the, because my other characters are, are more unknown, there was fortunately uh, the botanist that I mentioned, I have his own journal from the expedition that he went on um, that I've written about in Into the World. So I've got a real sense of who he is from his own words, which is an amazing resource to have, and a little bit also for the gardener in that that respect. Um, and, yeah, and just the internet is an amazing resource for us now because you can source so much um, and freely available. So some of the... Um, sort of tell-all expose uh, records of people that knew Napoleon and Josephine. Their memoirs are available and translated online. And, um, yeah, so I would pretty much I just read widely to begin with um, and I had a few specific things that were a bit about the unknown people and then I just um, I just start to write and when I need to know something specific, I'll Google it <laughs> and see what comes up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Look, perhaps just turning away from the individual books to looking a little more widely at your career, you've mentioned about your time in Australia and your science career. Tell us a little bit about your life before writing and how it's fed into your writing. We have covered that a little bit with the scientific, but how long were you in Australia? And, and you grew up in New Zealand, I think. Yes, that's right. I was um, born in Christchurch and um, I did all my schooling and university mostly down there. And then um, I worked as a scientist at NIWA for about 15 years and um, also uh, did my PhD at the University of Waikato. Um, and 
after that, I, I've always sort of wanted to do writing, as I mentioned, but also art. Um, so we had the opportunity to move to Australia and I chose to not really try and get a science job at that point. I thought I will try to further my art career and also the writing. So that's what I did. While I lived there for 10 years, I got involved in um, a local art gallery and I concentrated on writing my first novel. So, yeah, so a complete change. Mostly before I um, went to Australia, I was in science and then when we went there, I um, tried a few different things that I'd always wanted to give a go. And fortunately, um, the writing has worked out and I'm now doing that pretty much full time. Now, for those who don't know, Niwa is one of the agencies in New Zealand that handles weather. So I guess that means you've actually got a pretty in-depth understanding about all of these weather events and climate change. Yeah, I was a freshwater ecologist. So oh, okay, um, okay. Yeah. not on the climate side of thing, but uh, definitely we worked with people uh, alongside us who were climate scientists. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. So it's an interesting, um, an interesting place to learn a lot about different sciences going on. That's that's for sure because we were freshwater, yeah. marine, and climate. Yeah. You mentioned about your art. Were you actually practicing as an artist, like painting or drawing? Yes, or? that's right. I did um, pastel art mainly, pastel paintings. Um, but yep, I was um, exhibiting, and um, I yeah still have a have a few um, art pieces around the place. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah. That's wonderful. Look, if there's one thing that you've done more than any other to attribute your success as a writer, um, what would you think it would be? Oh, that is a really hard one. Um, I think it's probably persistence, really, um, just the length of time that it takes, um, just sticking at it, because it took me seven years to write the first novel um, and it took a long time to get it published as well. So it's all that sort of stickability really. <laughs> Eventually, yes. you know, if you work hard and you work at it and you work at the craft um, and then, uh, yeah, just keep persisting no matter the number of rejections. <laughs> <laughs> Turning to Stephanie as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading and, and it's predicated a little bit on series reads, I found it interesting that your two books are very much linked, although they don't, they're not published specifically mm -hmm. as a series, but it's lovely that the story can be carried through. Yep. Um who do you like to binge read? And have you got any recommendations for our listeners about who, who you'd think would be great for them to try now? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, what was actually got me back into reading in terms of a series was um, was the Harry Potter series, funnily enough. But um, I, when that came out, uh, it was sort of that time when, that you had to wait for the next one to come out, which 
has been, yeah. a, you know, I hadn't had that experience for a long time or maybe ever with reading. So with the Harry Potter one, my husband used to joke, oh, yeah, you'll be lining up at the bookstore with all the kids in their capes and, <laughs> and wands. <laughs> <laughs> so that one actually got me uh, back into that joy of waiting for the next one to come out, you know, being so involved in those characters. Um, and these days I actually seem to read more one-offs, but um, I do like that. Um, I like that TV series Poldark, um, so I should try the books of that. And also people have been recommending to me the Outlander series of books, which I haven't um, read yet either. But in terms of series, those are the ones I'm thinking I should um, delve into. Yes. Also people, though, even without having exactly series, people often like they discover a reader and they uh, an author and they like to read everything by that author. Have you got some favourite authors like that that you, apart from J.K. Rowling, that you like to yeah. read everything that they write? Yeah, there's an English author called Hilary Mantel. Uh, well, Hilary Mantel, oh, yes. sorry, yes, everyone probably knows her, but also um, uh, Michelle Lovrick. Um, and I read one of hers uh, called The Book of Human Skin and then I was... Um, like captivated and had to go back and find all of her other ones. Um, she has things called The Floating Room. She writes a lot about Venice. It's all historical. Um, and I really love those. They are sort of very poetic descriptions, but strong poetic descriptions, just really surprising and um, great characters too. So so Michelle Lovrick is is one that and what what era? Sixteen, seventeen hundreds, that kind yes, of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's amazing how many good writers there are around. You know, even though I've been doing this podcast for two years, and I'd say probably at least fifty percent of the people we have on are historical fiction writers, but. Nobody's mentioned her name to me before, and she sounds as if she'd be really good. But there's lots of undiscovered treasures out there, isn't there? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So I, I chanced upon her by winning that book at a, a raffle or something. <laughs> so, you know, just those sorts of strange <laughs> things. And then, yeah, and then I really sort seek them out whenever they get published now. Yeah, grand, fantastic. Now, um, sort of coming around, we're starting to come to the end of our time together. So... Just taking a look back over your writing career, at this stage, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything that you would change? And if so, what would that be? Um, probably not in terms of my life experiences because I think it was great that, you know, I really enjoyed my science career and I really enjoyed um, trying art and, you know, just adding all these different things to your life experience before you... Um, before you go to write because it's kind of like it's an outpouring of stuff that you've accumulated in your <laughs> life experience that comes out on the page. Um, the only thing, the major thing for perhaps other writers that I've learnt was uh, just that process of trying to get published. Um, the first time I tried to do that with my first book, it took me about three years of individually trying, pushing that and and. I, I learned a lot about going the right way. I did things the wrong way and I learned more about how I should have done it when I did actually get my first book published. So, yeah, there's all that learning, but you can't help that, you know, that's that's all part of life and um, the things that you pick up along the way and, yeah. But, no, so there's nothing really that I 
would change, um, I don't think. <laughs> who, who are you published with now? Alan and Unwin. Oh, great, yes. They're a well-known Australasian, yes. very well-known um, yep. Australasian company. Great, having them both mm. in Australia and in New Zealand. Um, so there's great teams that are helping me there, yeah. Mm. Mm. So what is next for Stephanie, the writer? I, I know you've mentioned you're going on a book tour to Australia in February. Tell us a bit about where you'll be in that tour. This will be being published probably uh, late January, so or just very early February. So what what are some of your dates there? Where are you going? Uh, going to Melbourne um, in Feb 4th. That starts it off. Um, then I'm going through to sort of Warrnambool along the coast um, and then through to Adelaide, uh, Canberra and Sydney, around the Sydney area and hopefully up um, the coast towards Brisbane a bit as well. So that's, um, yeah, so that's some of the major ones. Adelaide is 11th of Feb. Um, Canberra is a few days after that and Sydney around the weekend of the 15th of Feb. But all that should be on my website soon. Great. And what about works in progress? Have you got anything else that you've got on your typewriter, so to speak? Yes, yes. So, and in speaking about series, um, I'm, yeah, it's another third one that is connected to these other two. So in the first novel, the first scene starts with my heroine has to give up a child to go on on this voyage. She's an illegitimate um mother and she's been abandoned by her family and um, her choice is to give up her child and disguise herself as a man and flee the wrath of her family. Um, And in the third book, I'm writing the story of the boy. So this is her child that she gave up. Um, So it's, it's what happens to him ultimately and how he reconnects with his mother. So, yeah. So in terms of series, it's great to keep some of those characters going and, yeah, they feed into each of the books, even if they're standalone stories. That's fantastic. And how much of that one is is historically accurate? It's based at the time when Napoleon's reign is ending. So it's um, my character, the boy, is is grown up when you first meet him and he's a storyteller. And he's a travelling storyteller and he's been moving through these areas that are French-owned at the moment because Napoleon's empire is there. But the empire is crumbling and they're having to get out because um, the Russians and Prussians are starting to reclaim the areas of their own. Uh, so that's that's the sort of true facts of the time that are happening. And then my characters are all made up within that. Um, but the true dates and those sorts of things of what battles were happening and where uh, things were changing will will be historically accurate, yeah. Fantastic. Oh, that sounds as if it would be great fun. When will that one be Well, published? I've just finished the first draft, so it's still got a few more drafts to go before I feel I can even show it to anyone. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm hoping, uh, hoping another couple of years and I should 
Uh it should be out on the shelves let's hope (laughs) (laughs) that's lovely Stephanie now look do you like interacting with your readers and and I presume that if you do apart from these tours it would be online How, how do people find you online and do you have a place where you like to talk to readers yes I am on Facebook and on Instagram um, so Facebook, I have a page called Steph Parkins Story Place um, and Instagram is just under my name and all that uh, should be on my website, which is stephanieparkin.com. Um, yeah, so love to and love meeting uh, people in, in the flesh as well at different events. So, yeah. That's lovely. And we will we'll have full show notes of this. We publish a full transcript of, of our podcast interviews as a blog and we'll put links to those, uh, all of those particular places in the show notes so that if people want to, they can find them that way as well. Oh, fabulous. Thank you. Well, look, it's been marvellous talking. It really has. Um and I wish you all the very best with your book tour in the state, uh, in the in Australia. It sounds like that coast that you're going down is one of the areas that's been quite heavily hit. So you definitely will see yeah. some of the devastation, I think, on that trip. Yes, Coffs Harbour and Lismore, they all had the first brunt of fires, I think. Yeah, so those are places I'm going to as well. Mm. Okay, Stephanie, well, look, all the very best and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with, no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.